All right, turn with me if you would. We're going to get back into Genesis, of course. You know me, I live in this book. We're now to chapter 34. We're going to talk about Dinah's dilemma. So um, usually when I'm preaching, you'll notice I print out my notes. And I have my notes with me then in paper form. This morning, usually I do that in the morning before we head to church. We woke up this morning at 7 o'clock because the power was out at our place and it was still not on when we left. But I had my, thankfully, praise the Lord, had my computer charged up enough, my laptop charged up enough, and that's where I had typed up all my notes. And so that's what I've got today. So, all right, last time I preached, we covered Genesis chapter 33. Where we saw Jacob finally man up, take courage, and forge ahead to meet face-to-face with his brother Esau. Remember, kind of in 32 and 33, we have this this struggle, right? Jacob is leaving Laban. He then sends an envoy to tell Esau, hey, I'm coming home. And Esau, remember, replies uh, without words. He doesn't send a message back with the messenger. He just comes to meet his brother with 400 men, which is a sizable force if we're talking about fighting men. And that's, in essence, what they were. That's what the text seems to indicate there. And so Jacob is pretty distraught when he sees that, right? He's, he's, he's scared. And for good reason. He prays to God. He tells God, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Um, remember, Lord, remember, he prays God's word back to God. Remember, God, you promised to bring me back unharmed. And he should have rested in that and then just walked it out. But instead, he gets really panicky. He starts going, what can we do? Let's divide up the camp. Let's send these first and those next and this and that and the other. And he, he it not, just is, not only is he panicky, but it's the way that he's panicking that we notice. We notice he's sending everybody ahead and he's at the very end of the train, the caravan. Which is to say he's putting everybody else out into danger first so that he can watch how it goes. And then maybe if it doesn't go well, he can escape. Which is to say, and I told you this before, that's a very cowardly self-preservation. That's really what, what's going on. He's, he's acting out of cowardly self-preservation. And so after he already sends everybody else ahead, remember what happens. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, God in the flesh, shows up. And he wrestles with, quote, a man all night. Right? He wrestles with that man all night. And finally, at the breaking of the day, the man says, let me go. Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. The man touches, just touches his hip, puts it out of socket. Which is one of the hardest, that is the hardest ball and socket. It's a ball and socket joint. It's a full ball and socket joint. Not to go all anatomy nerd on you here, but it's the only place in the human body that does have an actual full ball and socket joint. Shoulder does not. Glenoid fossa in the shoulder is more of a depression, so it doesn't have the same stability. It has a lot more flexibility, but doesn't have the same stability. So the hip joint was a very, very, still is a very, very stable joint. To put it out of joint takes tremendous force. And we see this man touch him and put it out of joint. And remember, remember I told you that's significant because... He's now going to go into what is his greatest fear. In his mind, he's going to have to go fight a battle. And God is sending him into that circumstance 
in a place of weakness. He's weaker than he's ever been before. And God is making something very clear to Jacob, right? He's, what he's making clear to Jacob is, Jacob, I'm the one that must go before you. I'm the one that fights you. It's not you. You're not going in your strength or your wisdom. I'm doing it. You rely on me. Stop trying to take charge and take over and figure everything out. You just walk the way I have told you to walk. I will take care of the details. I will keep you safe. I will watch over you. And, of course, that's a poignant point for us as Christians today because it's the same way for us today. We get very flustered and frustrated because we see these different details of certain situations that we're in and we think this could be really dangerous for us or this could really go poorly. I don't know how this is going to work out. And God is saying, listen, at the end of the day, when you've done all you can do, as Ephesians says, just stand. Stand fast. Watch me work. Watch me do what only I can do. And so, of course, he goes, he finally regains his courage. He starts acting like a man again. He, he literally limping. He overtakes the caravan and he decides to go in front of the women and the children. He's going to meet his brother first. That's, as I told you last time, the way we should be as men. What do we do as men? One of the things that we do as men that we're going to, by the way, I'm going to get into today. If you're a real feminist, you may not like this part, but one of the things we do as men is we put ourselves between the women and children in danger. That's one of the things we do. And ladies and children, a lot of times that's done without any gratitude or thanks on your part. And it's not right. And I'm going to bring that up today. There are some of you who sleep really, really well at night, drooling into that pillow without any thought or care in the world, only because there is a man in your house who is willing to be the little bit of monster that's necessary to keep you safe. When something goes bump in the night, you don't worry about it because dad is the one that gets up and makes sure everything's okay. When was the last time you said thanks for that? I'll bet some of you have never said thanks for that in your life. We live in a culture that is absolutely without gratitude for men who act as men. And then we wonder why we don't have any men acting as men. Yes, how strange. We'll get into that here a little later, though. <laughs> Don't let me get off into that. I can get into that and get to kicking cans now. All right, so 33, though. He faces, he faces Esau like a man. And what do we find? He also faces Esau with something else, doesn't he? He faces him with humility. Bows down to him seven times with a hip that's out of socket. That was not without pain. Bowing down to the ground prostrate, getting back up, bowing down to the ground prostrate, as if Esau is a king and Jacob is a peasant. He's acting with humility and honor. And what's the response from Esau? Esau, we find out, remember, because the last time we saw Esau, he was breathing threats of murder to Jacob, right? So Jacob has real reason to be scared, no doubt. But what's Esau's response when he sees his brother? He's just happy he's alive. He just crumples down onto his neck. They embrace. He weeps, kisses him. Listen, I have a brother that I grew up with. My mom's here. She can tell you all the stories. Do you know how many times my brother and I fought growing up? I don't. I know it was probably too many to keep track of. Over and over. We could, I mean, you, you, we just fought over stupid stuff. There was no reason to fight over. And we could have, like, you know, bloody noses, like 
good fights over stuff like that, right? What, it's something weird happens. You get out of the house. I don't know what it is. Something weird happens between siblings, though. You grow up, and there's some kind of bond there. Maybe because you beat on each other for so many years. I don't know. But when I see my brother, I don't fight with my brother. I love my brother, right? I want the best for my brother. And the same, him for me. He's the same way, right? He looks out for me. Why is that? Well, he's my brother. And what we see with Esau and Jacob is the same. They did fight. Fought a lot. And here's Esau saying, basically, it's just good to see you alive. Now, who's this whole crew you've got with you? Remember, this is Uncle Esau has never seen these people. So he sees the whole family, right? Which is good. And he, he tells them, would you like me to leave some of these men here to protect you? So here's these men that Jacob is scared. Hey, these guys, there's 400 men of war. They're coming out here to, to kill us. And what actually ends up happening is Esau offers them to him as protection. You want me to leave some of these guys here with you? Now remember, this is, this, part of this route that he's traveling was a pretty well-established trade route. You could get out into places there where it was a legitimate fear to, to be assaulted by bandits, robbers, right? Ne'er-do-wells. And so the, the, the offer of leaving the men for protection was, was not without precedence. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, obviously, Jacob has people of his own. Right? He has male and female servants, this, the Bible says. So he would have had a sizable force, probably not the most inviting of targets because there's enough people there, right? And he had, he had kids. And remember, he had, he had a whole bunch of boys. Now, at this point in time, in chapter 32 and 33, those boys would have been pretty young still. Probably the oldest one was just barely a teenager by then. But what we're going to see here in verse 34, once we get to chapter 34, there's been a few years here, and we don't know exactly how those years were broken up. We don't know how long he ends up staying in Succoth. We don't know how long it took him to get to Shechem. We don't know how long he was in Shechem before this thing happens. But we do know that it was a, a number of years. Probably because, remember, in 33, he, he pitched a house. He made a house and booths for his animals in, in, verse, or in uh, chapter 33 in Succoth. So he probably stayed there for quite a while. He, uh, my thinking is, I think he was going there to overwinter. And he's got a bum hip. He starts going, dude, it's not easy to do this traveling thing. Let's just stay here for a little while. Let's stay here. Let's heal up. Let's rest up. Let's... And things get comfortable. Have you ever been there? You ever been in a place in life like that? I'll just stay here for a few months, and a few months turns into a few years. If you're 15, 16, 17, you may never have experienced that, but by the time you get to my age, you probably have. Yeah? And my wife and I were talking the other day. I was like, I'm about to turn 44. I was 24 yesterday. Right? You get to a certain age in life, and you start thinking of things in terms of years. This bunch of years we'll be doing this, and this group of years we want to do this. And we, you see where I'm going with that? When you're 15, that's forever. Five years, oh my gosh, that's a third of your life. You're not thinking in terms of years, you're thinking in terms of weeks. Like only in high school, it's, they've been together for like three months, dude, it's forever. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, it's true, right? And you get, you, know, you get out and you get a little bit older and you realize, man, three months is like... That's that. Well, I think that's what's kind of happening here. All right. So let's move up here. Let's do this. Before 
Before we get any farther, let's, let's pray. Lord, we pray you would show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you to use me as a mouthpiece to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Lord, let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the encouragement and edification, the building up of your people, and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone, Lord, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask, and all God's people said, Amen. All right. Remember, Jacob's humility was the linchpin of restoration between the two brothers, and I told you that. So after his layover in Succoth, here's the deal. I, I, I was trying to make a PowerPoint to show you guys because I need a, a picture, a map, so that you can see kind of the route he takes. There's, he's, remember, Jacob had come from Bethel. Remember, Bethel was where he meets God at, right? And then he journeyed, on, on, when he was fleeing from Esau 20 years ago, he fled from his parents' camp through Bethel, probably up through Shechem, through Succoth, and all the way out to, eventually, Paden Aram, which is where Laban's family was, right? Now he's coming back. He's making the return journey. And when he gets to Succoth, remember, that's where he built the house, and he had the booths for the animals. He's, he's making a place for it. You know, it's, he's making shelters for the livestock. So he obviously intends to be there a while. Now, from Succoth, you could go two ways. If he was wanting to go to Bethel, he could go one of two ways. You could either go, I'll try to do this from your point of view with my hand motions here. From Succoth here, near Succoth, you could go basically right down the Jordan River. And you could go to Edom, remember, which is where his brother was. And then you could turn and you could go, be his left on the map, so it would be west. You could go west to Bethel. You could go that way, okay? Or you could go the way that he went the first time, which was a more established route, probably a trade route, from Succoth. Instead of going south down to Edom, or close to Seir, which is a mountain down there that was, remember, where, where Esau was living. Instead of going that way, you could also just go straight west to Shechem, then turn and go south and go to Bethel. Does that make sense? That's probably the way that he came when he was first fleeing. It was a more established route, probably a trade route. I had to call up poor Caleb last night, like 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, hey, Caleb, I'm, I'm looking through some of this stuff, man. Look, think this over with me. I had to borrow his brain. Sometimes you do that. You got brainiac friends. I got a few of them. Caleb's one of them. They're like, hey, take a look at this. What do you notice? And then they notice it, and you're like, oh, that's really good. Thanks. I'm going to steal that. Fantastic. Send my sermon. So, <laughs> poor, poor guy. He had, to, he had to endure three days of that with me to all the way out to Louisiana and back. But after his layover in Succoth, I think, because here's what we see. We see Jacob tell his brother, hey, listen, Esau, you go on ahead, go back home to Seir, to Edom. We'll catch up to you later. I think Jacob's plan was, you know what, we'll just trade, we'll change routes here. We'll lay over in Succoth, and then we'll go south, which is exactly how he got home. That's how Esau got home. Right, he goes south from Succoth, basically where he meets up his, with his brother. He, he basically rides along the river and gets back home that way. I think Jacob's plan originally was, hey, we'll just change route. We'll go down. We'll see bro, uh, brother Esau, uncle Esau. Then we'll go west from there. We'll go back to Bethel that way. It's a, kind of a different route, a little bit out of the way. But, hey, we've got family here. But he stays in Succoth for a while. 
And he obviously changes his mind. Now, he may have sent a messenger to Esau to say, hey, we're not going to come that way after all. He may not have. The text doesn't tell us anything. We don't know. We don't know what all transpired with them. We don't even know how long he was there. All we know is eventually he says, hey, let's pack up. It's time to get going. Instead of going to Bethel, like was originally the plan, though, he kind of stops over again in Shechem. He doesn't just stop over. He buys land. Now listen, what does it tell you if someone buys land? Certainly in this day and age, it does not tell you that they're an investor from New York. Okay? If they buy land, it tells you they're planning to stay there at least for a while. Right? Especially if you have livestock. I don't know if you've ever had to move with livestock. It's, it's not an easy thing. Right? In this day and age, you didn't pull the cattle trailer up to move the livestock. How would you have to move them? Oh, man. Yeah. By hand. You've got to have people that are literally keeping them from going astray. You've got to walk them wherever you're going. Listen, it's not easy to move livestock and to move all of your stuff if you have land today. And that's with, you know, gas and diesel-powered vehicles and trailers. And it's still a lot of work. How much more so in that day and age? So my guess is that also probably figures into it, right? They get to suck off. They get all these things built. Hey, we've got a good place here. We've got a good thing going. (sighs) Let's not have to do this again. And it may have been that in Shechem. They may have thought, you know what? We've got all the way here. Let's stay here for a while. Maybe we'll stay here for a few more years, kind of like at Suckoth. In fact, let's just buy some land. But remember, Suckoth was a big deal, or Shechem was a big deal. Shechem wasn't just another hole in the wall on the journey. Shechem was an incredibly important place to a grandson of Abraham. Remember, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And what happened in Shechem? Shechem was where God met with Abraham and told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. So Shechem is a very important place. There's already an altar there built to the Lord that Abraham had built. That was where the Lord had promised Abraham the land. Jacob buys a piece of land there for a hundred pieces of money. I love how it says that, a hundred pieces of money. What is that? We don't know. hundred pieces of silver? Could be. hundred pieces of gold? Could be. hundred pieces of some other unknown coinage used at that time? Could be. We don't know. All we know is that was the price. Jacob buys the piece of land there, so it's obvious he's planning to stay there for a while. Maybe he's planning to stay there for the rest of his days. We don't know. But we're going to see soon enough, Jacob is going to find himself on the move once again. And really the reason he's going to find himself on the move, and I'm I'm going to hit on this a little bit today, is because of the passivity of his parenting. The passivity of his parenting. Listen, men. Some men are naturally more passive than others. Some are more quiet than others. Some are more reserved than others. I'm not saying that's sinful. Obviously it's not. But even if you're a very quiet, reserved, passive man by nature, there are times where you need to speak up. And if you know you need to speak up and you stay quiet, it is sin. If you're Adam and you're standing there watching the serpent deceive your wife 
and you don't say anything, which is exactly what happened, it will be charged to you. Do you notice that? By the way, have you ever noticed that? Kind of off this topic, off my notes here. But Romans, Genesis tells us about Adam and Eve in the garden, right, with the serpent. The serpent is talking to Eve, who Paul says later is easier to beguile because the woman was more naive. Ladies, Paul said that's a pattern that holds today. I know nobody wants to hear that. Adam is standing right there and says nothing. Who was the first person to eat the fruit, Adam or Eve? Eve. Who was the sin charged to? Adam. The Bible says that sin came through Adam. It was Adam's job to speak up, to take charge. What should Adam have done as he saw the serpent deceiving his wife? He should have grabbed the serpent, thrown it on the ground, and put a heel through its head. That's, in essence, what Jesus Christ would do later on the cross. Right? That was, in fact, the, the very thing that was said in, in chapter 3. I'm going to send a seed of this woman. You're going to bruise his heel. You'll bite his heel, but he'll bruise your head. He will crush your head. That's what Adam should have done. Gentlemen, we're going to see a situation here where dad should have said something. Dad should have spoken up. But dad decided to be passive. He decided to be silent when he should have spoken. And it's going to cost a lot. There is an epidemic of passive parenting today. And especially when it comes to men. And I think a part of it is because we look out and we see the culture and we go, well, everybody else does it. Yeah, you're not called to be like everybody else, Jacob. You're called to a different standard. Your parenting style is not called to reflect what every other parent does. It's not called to reflect the culture that you find yourself in. Because the culture that you find yourself in does not know God. In fact, the culture that you find yourself in actively hates God and his word, and they will suppress his truth in unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 says. If your parenting style reflects the rest of the culture, this is a bad model. It's a bad model to be modeling yourself after. So let's get into that. Turn with me to chapter 34, the book of Genesis, 34, verse 1. And while you're turning there, let me, let me say another little introductory remark about this chapter. You're going to notice that this narrative, at first blush, this narrative appears to be about a story of Dinah, Jacob's only daughter. But as we read the account, you're going to notice a particular peculiarity about it. You're going to notice that Dinah is barely present. She barely shows up in all of this narrative. And there's a reason for that. It's because God is pointing something out in this chapter that's not really about Dinah. It's really about Jacob. It's about Jacob's failure to be the father that Jacob is supposed to be. We're going to see that she never speaks. Her her words are never recorded in this entire narrative. Her actions are only recorded once in the first verse, after which she's only referred to as an object and never as a subject. She's literally objectified. After her brothers arrive on the scene, she only appears again in Scripture one other place. That's in the genealogy that we find in 46.15 later. She's barely mentioned. 
And yet this thing that transpires is going to literally change the history of this place in the Middle East. Another red flag you're going to notice in this chapter is that the name of God never appears. Not once. It appears in 33. It appears again in 35. But in 34, there's no mention of God at all. And there's a reason for that. By the way, in 35, we're going to see Jacob basically finally again start like leading and parenting the way he's supposed to. He tells them, put away your foreign gods. You know what that tells me? Somewhere in these chapters, because remember, they purified themselves earlier. Somewhere in these chapters, whether it was at Succoth or whether it's at Shechem or somewhere else along the way, somewhere along these chapters, there's a lot of idolatry that starts coming into the camp. Why is that? Well, the Psalms actually tell us about that. They tell us that Israel mingled themselves with the Gentiles and they learned their ways. And Christian, you're faced with the same thing today. You live in a world that does not reflect Christ, that actively hates Christ, and they do. And if you do, it will be your undoing. Dinah didn't realize that. Dinah was a very sweet, probably very attractive young woman, 15, 16 years old probably at this point. Her curiosity and her naivete cost her a lot. Cost her a life, really. Ruined her life. All right. Let's get started in this chapter. 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to, quote, see the women of the land. She went out to see the women of the land. What in the world does that mean? Well, that phrase, there's so much packed into that little phrase. But that phrase does not mean she just went out to, to go gawking. She didn't go to Walmart to go people looking, okay? She went out to see the women of the land. Also could mean this was something that she did fairly regularly. In other words, it could also be translated as at one point she went out again to see the women of the land. It could be translated that same way. We don't know. Is this the first time she's done this? Probably not. It seems that this would have been something of a pattern. At this point, she would have been around, like I said, 15 or 16 years old. She's just old enough. To really be considered marriageable age. In this culture, marriageable age was typically taken to be 12 years and a day. But that was kind of movable. It's a slidable scale, right? At 12 years old, not every kid is mature. So they would have to have been physically mature and of marriageable age. Typically, that was more like 15, 16 years old or above, okay? And by, by the way, that was by far the most valuable brides. The younger the bride was more valuable, up to a point, obviously. 15, 16, 17 years old is a very valuable bride. Why? Why not 27? Why not 37? Because she had more years of motherhood in her, right? If you're married at 17 or 18, you have a lot more years of childbearing age. Does that make sense? And as that girl got older, her value went down. 
Why? She didn't have as many years of fertility left. We're talking about a culture that values children. I know today we live in a culture that does not value children. But in that culture, these were this was the very valuable bride. Now we're talking about a 15 or 16-year-old daughter of a very wealthy livestock and landowner. Now what's her value? I mean, she's quite a prize to be had, okay? And that little fact certainly doesn't seem to have escaped Shechem, okay? She was a prize for any young man in that culture who's looking for a wife. I mean, this girl is like, she's the one to be had. She's the only daughter of a wealthy landowner and livestock owner who's also young and pretty. I mean, she's, she's the prize. So... So it's, it, this phrase, we, she went out to see the women of the land, could also be saying she's kind of going out for some, something like we might call it a girl's night out. Me and the girls, we're going out. She seems to be going out with the purpose of meeting, meeting these young women and probably taking a look and seeing what the young men of the land are around, who's available. Let's, uh, let's uh, stake out some, uh, some dudes here, guys. Josephus says that Dinah was probably going into town to take part in a feast or a festival. That's possible. Obviously, if that's going on, there's lots of young men and young women from the surrounding you know, area coming into town. That's possible. But I don't think we can substantiate that by the biblical text alone. Right? So in other words, he might be right, but I, I can't prove that. Maybe, maybe not. Listen to what Matthew Henry has to say about this. Man, whoo, you can tell he's coming from a puritanical stance. Listen to this. Quote, Young persons, especially females, are never so safe and well-off as under the care of pious parents. No doubt about that, obviously. Their own ignorance, coupled with the flattery of scheming wicked people, can expose them to great danger. True. He goes on, They are their own enemies if they desire to go abroad, especially if it's alone, and among those who are not true Christians. Okay, he might have been writing 400 years ago, but we have to admit he has some real wisdom here. You're a young, attractive woman, and your idea is let's go gallivanting around in a country of a whole bunch of people who don't know anything about Jesus? This could be a bad thing. He goes on. Let me, let me say that again. They become their own enemies if they desire to go abroad, especially when it's alone and among those who are not true Christians. And those parents are very wrong who do not hinder their children from needlessly exposing themselves to dangers like this. He's right about that, men. Henry goes on. Indulged children like Dinah often become a grief and a shame to their families. Though her pretense was to see the daughters of the land, to see how they dressed, how they danced, and what was fashionable among them, she went to see, yet that was not all. She obviously also went to be seen. She went to become acquainted with the Canaanites and to learn their ways. And now we see what became of Dinah's gadding. And the words that these guys used, huh? The Geneva Bible, the Geneva Bible has by far the most puritanical response. This entire chapter, this entire piece of scripture, it has one sentence about it. This example teaches us that too much liberty is not to be given to the youth. <laughs> That's the whole thing. 
But notice the absence of her father here. Here she's going to go to Gallivant. I'm going to go gallivanting around. I'm going to go have a good time, just me and the girls. Have you thought about how vulnerable you are? Well, surely that wouldn't happen here. Couldn't happen to me. Really? Is that right? Did you notice where her girl friends were at? Nowhere to be found. Listen, I'm going to tell you an uncomfortable truth. There are situations where you really do need a man. I don't need no man. Okay, Dinah. My wife, I'll embarrass her. My wife came home a few years ago. They went and did this like jujitsu because self-defense for women. She comes home. She's like, I learned some really cool stuff. And I'm like, did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I learned if a guy grabs you, you can just get away. And I said, well, you, you can only get away if he's a small enough guy. It's like, no, I, we learned these really cool things. Said, really? Yeah, yeah, do this. Grab my wrist. I said, okay. So I grab her wrist. To see, I just do this. And I said, okay, do you want me to really grab your wrist? You will not get away. Go ahead. Then get your other hand involved. You're not getting away. And I told her that. I said, listen, I, I, I'm not saying these classes aren't good. That's fantastic. I want you to know I, I love that. I'm glad you're learning it. I'm a judo guy. I want you to know self-defense. But I also want you to realize some of these techniques work really, really well as long as the person's playing along or they're a lot smaller than you. I'm not trying to be rude, but you get a little girl that's... Forgive me for embarrassing you. Grace Wright is up here on the front row, so she gets embarrassed. But you get a girl the size of Grace, and you get a, a guy the size of her dad. Stuff only works if he wants it to work. Do you understand? Okay? Not to embarrass him, but I've seen this guy clamp down like those hand grippers. Right? I've seen him crush some of those things. He can crush down that hand gripper probably hard enough to break her hand. Listen, I'm going to say some things that are going to be shocking and they're going to be offensive, but they're true. Some of you ladies are safe and only because there are good men who are willing to put themselves in harm's way to be enough of a deterrent to keep very bad men from doing very bad things to you. And you go about your day without even giving it a second thought. And that can get you into trouble because you start to live a life as if you don't need that man looking over you. Well, I've done this many times before. Yeah, you've done that many times before because people know who your dad is. Or you're there with him. You have some, they know there is a deterrent to their evil. Now, I hate to say it this way, but the truth of the matter is, the only thing that keeps bad men from doing whatever they want in the culture are other men who are willing to stand up and even be violent if, it, if it's necessitated. Violence itself is not always evil. And if you decide you're going to raise your little boys... To not, well, by golly, i got to make them soft. They're always wanting to wrestle, those boys. Can't believe them. I'm going to make sure they don't get it. Ah, you stop that. Stop that with your hand. Don't you make that gun, young man. Listen to me. They, anything, if you're a boy, anything is a weapon. Have you noticed that? My wife and I make fun. We, we, we say this all the time. We, like the most, the most necessary noise for our boys right now is shink. Because they're unsheathing, everything they grab, they're unsheathing a sword. 
Shink. Tink, 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 tink. What does he have now? It does not matter what's around our house. This morning, I could hear it out there in the front room. Shink, shink, shink. What is that? (laughs) Reagan looks at her and she goes, it's a hanger. (laughs) Of course it is. It's a sword, right? (laughs) No, we had a young man that came over to our house the other day for some advice, and he's a military guy. (laughs) And he came out, and he was chuckling. He had gone into the uh, boy's room. He come out, and he's chuckling. I'm like, what's so funny? He says, I noticed you have a toy box in there that's labeled just weapons. (laughs) I said, I have boys. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, guess what? There's a reason God's made us the way he has. You know, you can take two, two people, a man and a woman, at the same weight. Their body still has very significant physiological differences. Here's some of them. Their facial bones are thicker. Their hand bones are thicker. Their wrist bones are thicker. Why? The truth of the matter is they can absorb more punishment. It's true. Okay, if I get hit in the face, it's not fun. By the way, I've been hit in the face a lot. You may notice my nose. Okay? I was not born with a nose that looks this good. I had to get it broken to get it to look this good. Okay? But the truth of the matter is my face can absorb more punishment than my wife's. Okay? God has, has made me and men in such a manner as to put ourselves between danger. It's true. Uh, by the way, this is not just this culture. Most cultures in the earth for the history of time. If you were a woman, you did not go into town alone. You went with somebody. There's a very good reason for that. It's not just Muslim cultures that do that. I've heard that before. Like, well, in Muslim cultures, dude, it's not just Muslim cultures. Most cultures in all the earth did that for a very specific reason. If you're a woman alone, you are very vulnerable. I had three friends. Tell this story. I had three friends, girls in college, that were like they were the strong, independent women. And so they had a house by themselves, the three of them. We've had that talk a few times. Like, you know, this house isn't really in the best part of Ada. Oh, we're fine. There's three of us here. Like, yeah, I see that, but I'm not trying to be rude. But if I'm a burglar like you three here, it's really not that much of a deterrent. Y'all have a gun somewhere? Well, why would we need a gun? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Why would you need? I don't need a weapon. Okay. All right. Until finally one night about 1230, I get a phone call. I'm, I lived all the way outside of town. Actually, I lived on the Cornerstone, where the Cornerstone Kids Ranch is. I lived out there. Rented a place from the Stones, and I'd help them, you know, throw hay and th- stuff like that. So I'm out there like 1230 at night. Of course, I'm the only person that's still awake at that point in time. I get a phone call. <gasps> yes. Can you come over? Right now. It's 1230. There was a guy came up through the alley and he was looking through our window. Oh, you're strong, independent women. But take care of the problem, right? Now, why all of a sudden did they reach out to me? Because there's a part of you that knows, whether you want to admit it or not, that that's part of a job of a man. And all three of these very strong, independent young women all of a sudden knew we could be in real danger. I say it this way. I said this to Justin before. I know lots of girls, they like, 
They like to be around those boys. They think the pretty boys are cute. They like boys until they need a man. And then all of a sudden, now we see what a man is really supposed to be. And so I went over to their house and made sure everything was okay. Can you stay here? Sleep here tonight on the couch? No. no I'm not going to do that. So here's, the, here's what this teaches us, though. Where's the absent? Where's dad at? Where's the father at? Why isn't he saying something? Hey, Dinah, you're not doing that. You're not going to go into town alone or with a couple of your little girlfriends. Okay? Oh, and think about it from Dinah's perspective. I mean, from Dinah's perspective, look, it's not like it's evil. It's just naive. Have you noticed that? Like, kids can be that way. Okay, a 16-year-old kid, especially a 16-year-old girl, I know they think they know everything in the world, but there's lots of situations they really haven't thought all the way through yet because they've never had to. Might be a little bit naive, you know. No, this guy's really so nice, Dad. You don't even know he's so nice. Oh, I know he's so nice because I know what his intentions are. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I've been a 16-year-old boy before. You have not. Justin says it this way to his students. He says, I know more about being 16 than you do about being 40 and a dad. True story. So she's a little bit naive, but she's in a new place. She's, she's a kid. She's curious. She wants to find the other girls, right? She wants to go find out who, the, who, the, who are the other girls in the neighborhood. How do they dress? How do they, what do they do? How do they act? How do they dance? What's the customs here? She's just curious. She wants to find out. Nothing wrong with that. But where's the protection for her? She has a bunch of brothers. You could have told her, yeah, you go, yeah, go ahead, knock yourself out. By the way, you're taking Simeon with you. You're taking Reuben. You're taking Levi. Why? Because now you have someone. Listen, I'm not saying the guy that's with her has to be able to halt an invasion of, you know, of the Mongols. But he's big enough and strong enough to be a deterrent to that kind of violence. In other words, the bad guy knows if I go after that girl, that dude's going to knock some of my teeth out. It's not going to be a good day. Just like a dad at the home. A dad in a home it does not have to be able to fend off an invading army. He can't. But he can be enough of a deterrent that a bad guy knows, man, I go into that home, I may end up with bullet holes. I go into that home, I'm not going to come out the same way. Right? I've told my kids this. They'll, they'll get up, they get scared. I've told you all this before. They get scared in the middle of the night. They're like, there's a monster. I tell them, there's only one monster lives in this house, and it's me. Monster comes into our house, they'll take him out with a magnet because I'll pull him up full of lead, right? Precious metals first. Does that make sense? I know, lead's not really magnetic. I know, I know. I saw, I saw Justin's mind like, stop it. I know the chemistry's not right on this. Shut up. The saying works better this way. No. But that guy has to be strong enough and willing enough to be a deterrent to evil. And she's going alone. Let me tell you something. In any culture, in any culture where there's a lot of violence, in any culture where there's a lot of paganism, in any culture where there's a lot of idolatry, this is not a good idea. There's no indication that she has any accompaniment, certainly not male accompaniment, she just goes out to see the daughters of the land, as probably just as sweet and innocent and ignorant as can be. But that naivete is going to change her life. 
She just forgot for a minute how depraved the world really can be. Maybe she just forgot for a minute how vulnerable she really actually is. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. Where's her friends at now? Don't need no man. Verse 3, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Boy, now we've got a fix, don't we? By the way, some translations say his soul clung to Dinah. I love the poetic way the KJV renders it. His soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel. If she's a damsel, she literally is a damsel in distress here. Sam, you've seen it here in the scripture. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamer saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now remember something. Shechem is obviously, the the Bible calls him the prince of the land. The town is likely named after him, or he's named after the town, one of the two. It bears his name, nonetheless. It also says he's the most honored of all of his father's house. So Shechem would have been basically the most eligible bachelor around. And he sees this girl. My guess is it's not one of those where he sees this girl from afar and he grabs her and he drags her off into a bush and he assaults her. He is a big, big dude. When I say big dude, I mean he's well known. He's famous. He has an entourage. It's probably more like, hey, let's go talk to that girl. And in the midst of giving her all of this attention, he says, let's just take this all the way. We take for granted that the wrong in the story is Dinah being raped. And that is true. That is obviously wrong. But there's way more to this than what meets the eye. And that's because of the cultural context it sits in. So let me throw this out there. Man, time is getting away from me. I've got I to start motoring. The focus on consent is a very modern perspective. Okay? In other words, in our modern eyes, when we see this story, we go, man, I can't believe that was done to Dinah. But in that culture... When they would have heard this incident, it would have been more like, I can't believe you did that to that family. Because Dinah, as a girl, is seen as an extension of the family of Jacob. And she's got a whole bunch of brothers at home, and people are going, you're an idiot that you would do that to that family. Because, listen, if you would like to know who's going to take offense at this girl being wronged, her brothers will. Notice who of the brothers, by the way, takes offense. This is still common in polygamy today. Notice it's Simeon and Levi. They're the ones that are the most mad. Why? They're her full brothers. Okay, this is still very common in polygamous cultures today. You can have kids from the same dad that hate each other. They'll kill each other. That's literally one of the ways that we tracked down Osama bin Laden was through some of his brothers. Well, actually, they were his half-brothers. Brothers of the same dad, they didn't have the same mom, and they had no loyalty at all. They're like, oh, you're going to kill him? That just cuts one more person out of the family inheritance. Dude, here's his location. Here's how you can find him. Here's who you should talk to. All right? But not Simeon and not Levi. Those are her full brothers. They've been raised by the same mom. They've been raised in the same tent. They've grown up together. There's a lot more at stake. 
This, this act has not just shamed this girl, but it's disrespected and shamed her father, the whole household, every man in that house. The rape or seduction of an unmarried woman would have made it difficult for the father to marry that woman off later on. You would have to, in essence, advertise her as not a virgin. And that means you're certainly not getting the full bride price, and it's probably going to be very difficult to find a man that wants to marry them. Why? Well, for a lot of good reasons. A woman that's had multiple sexual partners does not create the same kind of pair bonding that a virgin does. And by the way, it doesn't matter if we're talking about woman or man here. They have the likelihood of bringing STDs in. There are a lot of issues at stake here. Uh, by the way, it's why God still calls that practice. Having sex before you're married, he calls it something very specific that I notice we really shy away from calling it in the church, and we shouldn't. That is whoredom. That's what it is. And there's a reason that it's shameful. There's a reason it's to be spurned. But I don't have time to get into all of that this time. If this matter became known publicly, it would be an insult to the honor of the entire family. Remember when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant? And the Bible says he was a righteous man. He didn't want to disgrace her publicly. Right? That's what, that's what they're talking about. He's a righteous man. He knew it would disgrace Mary and it would shame her entire family if someone found out that she was pregnant basically by adultery, right? And because he was a righteous man, he thought, you know what? I don't want to disgrace her and her entire family. I don't want to blow this thing up in their face, so I'm just, I'm just going to put her away just quietly. That's really what's going on. We're seeing a, a little bit, a glimpse into that culture. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid to take her as a wife. What's conceived in her is not the product of adultery. It's of the Holy Spirit, right? But that's showing us the culture that we're in here, okay? Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that his defiled... I'm sorry. Now Jacob heard that Shechem, he, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. There's a reason. I'll tell you here about that in just a second. Hamor, the son of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done such an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Notice something here. Verse 7. An outrageous thing had been done in Israel. This is the first time in all of Scripture where Israel is talked about as a nation or as a people group rather than just Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name has just been changed to Israel. But we're seeing that Israel does not just mean this person. It's all of the people that share in the faith of this person. All of the people in this household are called Israel. This is the embryonic form of a nation, if you will, right? It's one big extended family. They're not talking about the property or the land, but the people. They have a special covenant relationship of God. That is Israel. If you bear that covenant relationship of God today, you are part of the true Israel of God, the Bible says. But it's a disgraceful thing that's been done. It'll always be a disgraceful thing. And it, it ought not be done. Now, it was customary in those days. The entire family had to get together and approve of a marriage. You all have heard of arranged marriages, right? Listen, I've seen what the divorce rate is in America. I've seen what the divorce rate is in other countries that do arranged marriages like India. I'm okay with bringing it back. I'm just letting you all know. So, you know, taking bids on my daughter? Just kidding. No, I, it, it is a very strange practice to our Western thinking when we see arranged marriages. But 
It was done that way for a very good reason. We're going to find out who the entire family is. And you're going to meet the entire family of this girl. There's a good reason for that. They're going to be your in-laws forever, right? Hopefully just in-laws and not outlaws. I don't know. Every now and again, having an outlaw in there somewhere can be a useful thing. I'm just saying, especially in that day and age. No, they're going to have a big meeting. Dad and mom are going to come in. All the brothers and sisters are going to come in. Everybody's going to sit down and they meet the prospective husband and the father. Sometimes it'd be the prospective husband, mom and dad, and the whole family. It would be like two families meeting. And they're going to have to sign off on this thing, right? By the way, that's still a valid principle today. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If your mom or dad, young person, if your mom or dad has constant doubts about a person that you want to marry, you want to be in a long-term relationship with, you should at least take heed and listen to them. Why? Because those are the people that have your best interest at heart. They have no sexual proclivity or inclination at all. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that's always the case, okay? You could have ungodly parents who have reservations about this person because they're literally a Christian. That happens. But I am saying as a general rule of thumb, if mom or dad has big reservations, you should at least hear them out. What are the reservations? Is there something about this this narrative, though? The marriages were arranged in that day and age, and there's an emergency situation here because there's been a rape. So the fathers get together, the sons come in, there still has to be an approval process. So look how this works out. Let's go back to verse 8. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You dwell with us in the land, and it will be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father, Jacob, and to her brothers, Please let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. Now listen, I, I don't typically want to be taking up for a rapist. But given the circumstance, he's trying to make it right. Okay? And by the way, later we will see in the Mosaic Law, this is exactly what was to be done. If a man and a woman had a sexual encounter outside of marriage, the way it was to be dealt with was that man would have to pay the full bride price, he would have to marry the woman, and he was never allowed to divorce her. Shechem, to his credit, is attempting to somehow make right what he obviously did wrong. He says to them, please, basically, I I know, he's owning up to it. I know what I did was wrong. Don't be mad at me. Don't kill me. That's a good start. right, let me find favor in your eyes. Give this girl to be my wife. Remember, he is the most eligible bachelor. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is one of the things I was running through last night. Like, in my mind, what do you do if you're Jacob? Okay, you should have done a bunch of things to keep this from happening, but what do you do after it happens? You say no to Shechem, like, who are you going to give this girl to? At least Shechem is, has enough wealth and business sense she's going to be taken care of. And it says he loves her. By the way, that word for love really does mean love. 
I think in Jacob's mind, he's thinking, you know what? This is probably the best of a bad situation. I think that's what he's thinking. You'll dwell in the land. Let it be open to you. Ask me. Here's what Shechem says. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you want. I'll give you whatever you ask. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. What's really interesting in, our, in my Western mind is nobody even asks Dinah anything. She's just the object of the relationship. Nobody says a word to her. By the way, we don't know that this is actually what we would really call rape. It might have been more like a seduction. Because we don't have any record of her crying out. And later on when the Mosaic Law would be given, that was the, that was the, um, that was the criterion. If the woman cried out for someone to save her, then it was basically against her consent and there was a different set of rules to follow. But if she didn't cry out, it was basically saying, you know what, you were, you were okay with it. You weren't really raped, you were seduced. Does that make sense? What's weird is we don't really know which of these, like how did this whole thing go down? We don't know. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. I can understand that. I've got a sister. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. So only on this condition will we agree with you that you'll become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you. We'll take our daughters to our, your daughters to ourselves. We'll dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Question. Who was it that was, re- that was retorting to Shechem? The boys. The boys say, if you don't do this, we'll take our daughter. Uh, excuse me, boys. That's not your daughter. What's going on here? Where's dad? Passive again. It's not them that's running the show or shouldn't be. By the way, have you ever seen this? They would have been roughly teenagers to young 20s at this point. I'm sure you've never seen a teenage boy that knew everything. But I'll let you know, in case you talk to my mom later, I've known one or two in my time, me being one. Yeah, I know how to do this. Dad, get out of the way. I got this handled, okay? No, Dad should have been front and center. That's his daughter. He should have been the one saying, here's how we're going to handle this. And you boys, shut up fall in line know your place you want to be the head of the household fantastic go buy yourself a house you can be the head of that household but this is my household and i'm still the boss here sometimes i have to have that conversation with my kids you may notice sometimes sometimes kids get that way they're pretty sure all the other kids should be listening to them i'm the boss or they know the best way to punish this kid. I've had some of my kids do this. I'm sure you as parents have never seen this before. One kid comes up to you and says, you know what? So-and-so was doing this. They need a spanking. Yeah. Oh, do they? Do they, little cop? Do they? You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll go ahead and be their dad still. Why don't you go run along and be a kid? Right? Essentially, that's what's going on. Jacob's sons are usurping their God-given authority, and they're certainly not done with that. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, verse 18. i got to just run. The young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. 
Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land's large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree to dwell with us and become one people, that every male among us is circumcised just as they are circumcised. Now look at verse 23. This is, he's such a good politician. You can tell Hamor's a politician, right? He sells them this. There's this terrible thing that you're going to hate. It's really uncomfortable, but don't worry. It's going to be good for the economy, guys. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts become ours? Only let us agree with them so they will dwell with us. Guys, think about this. It's going to be good for the economy. That's why weed should be legal. It's going to be good for the economy. That's why gambling should be legal. It's going to be good for the economy. It's going to boost our schools. I've worked in those schools. The same dollars we are promised are not the dollars that get there. Just going to let you know. No, guys, it's going to be good for the economy. Look. <clears throat> so all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, a really nice way of putting it, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, and they killed all the males. Now, it, I really doubt it's just those two probably those two and some of their servants and it's basically a small invading army and they come in and they kill every male they killed hamor and his son shechem with the sword they took dinah out of shechem's house and went away man there's so much in that i wish i had time to get through it but i don't the sons of jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister so they didn't just kill the guy who had done the bad deed they killed his dad they killed every other male that was in the entire city. Then they plundered everything. They took away all the children, the wives, the goods. It might have gone a little far, don't you think? They took their flocks and herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. That was verse 28. 29. All the wealth, all the little ones, and their wives, all that was in the homes, they captured and plundered. Let me give you a, two words that you should write down somewhere. Lex talionis. <clears throat> Lex talionis. What is that? Lex talionis is basically the Romanized, Latinized version of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It became the law. Lex talionis was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the Old Testament. That's how it should be today. <clears throat> that is called justice. Some people who are absolute morons will look at Lex Talionis and they'll say, see, the God of the Old Testament was so cruel. If you knock somebody's eye out, your eye had to be knocked out. Look how cruel that God is. No. Lex Talionis was instituted to keep this stuff from happening. Let me tell you how it works. These were the kind of fights we got in with my, my own brother. If my brother hit me once, do you think I hit him back once? No, I tackled him to the ground and hit him three or four or five times. You know why in my mind? I'm going to teach you a lesson. You're going to learn not to mess with me. So the, quote, justice is not justice at all. It becomes vengeance now, right? I'm going to not just get even. I'm going to send a message. 
And that's exactly what happens here. Why does God institute Lex Talionis? Because he is going to keep vengeance sheltered. No, you're not going to get to go just kill them and teach them a lesson. This was what was done. This is what will be done to you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The reason God's doing that is to keep this kind of stuff from happening. The God of the Old Testament was not some big, cruel, nightmarish God. He was keeping people from getting angry and taking vengeance on their own, knowing that our natural proclivity is to take more than we got. You hit me once, I'm going to hit you three times. That's how it works. And then what happens to that person? Well, they come back, you hit me three times, so I'm going to hit you six. And eventually, you know what you get? A tribal war. People dying because somebody said something disrespectfully. Right? There was a very famous war between a couple of families on the Kentucky border that started from a pig. A pig. Basically, a guy notched the ears of his pig and he let the pig run loose in the woods and his neighbor finds the pig and thinks, oh, I've captured a pig that's just out roaming in the woods and so I'll take it to market and eat it. And they get to squabbling over it and eventually it will become such a war that literally the government has to send in people and go, stop killing each other. The McCoys and the Hatfields. How? Well, because that's human nature. Lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, is to keep people from taking vengeance on their neighbors. It is to establish true justice. I love when I talk about this because every time I talk about this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, every time someone will quote me Gandhi. Well, you know what Gandhi said? An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Yeah, I'm sorry that your favorite guru was an idiot. An eye for an eye keeps the whole world alive. Okay? That's what's going on. I, there's so much more to talk about. I don't have time. Let me finish this chapter out, and then we'll pick back up here next time. 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me. Now look at what Jacob says. Look at how he words this. He doesn't care that it's Dinah. He's not thinking about anyone but himself. He has an eye problem. Listen to this. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. If there's a failure of parenting, there it is. And they said, but should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Which tells me something about the relationship that he and the sister had. But again, don't really have enough time to get into it. <clears throat> Whatever happened to Dinah? We don't know. There's lots of Jewish myths about Dinah. Did you know one of the Jewish myths about Dinah was that she married, ended up marrying Job? Is that true? I don't know. It's possible. We don't know. There's another midrash, which is to say like Jewish rabbi lore. Okay, it's just... We can't substantiate it. But there is a midrash that says Dinah became pregnant from Shechem and bore a daughter. And eventually that daughter was um, uh, adopted by this really powerful family in Egypt. And eventually that's who Joseph married. So it brought her back into the, uh, 
into Israel. That sounds nice. Isn't that a nice story? But the problem is we have no evidence for it. What became of Dinah? The best we know is this. Dinah was taken back. Dinah never married. Dinah lived all of her life as a spinstress. It's really a tragic story. It's a sad story. Part of that was because of Dinah's own naivete. Part of that was because of Dinah's, the vengeance of Dinah's brothers. But the true message should be, where was Jacob? Why didn't he say something? Why wasn't he involved? Why did he pass like Adam in the garden? Rather than involving himself when it was necessary, like Christ. Let me close by saying this. Our, our fathering, our parenting is to model Christ. Our parenting is to teach our children to follow Christ faithfully. And listen, part of that means our children are, by nature, naive and they're ignorant. They have not spent 40 years on this earth. They don't see the schemes that other people are trying to work on them. They don't see the snares that other people are trying to set for their feet. You do. And especially you dads. You do see it. You're not ignorant. God has given you discernment. Use it. The old saying is this, the man who won't read is no better off than him who can't. Well, listen, the man who won't speak up when he sees something wrong is no better than the man who never sees it at all. It does you no good, Dad, if you have discernment, if you're not willing to use it. Mom, it does you no good that Dad has discernment if you're not willing to listen. Our children are a precious commodity, and they're worth us speaking up for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know your word shows us truth. God, we ask, we, uh, we repent today, Lord, of being passive. Parents, show us, Lord, how to have discernment, how to guard and protect those that you've put into our care, how to warn them, Lord. God, I ask that you would give grace to the children here, Lord, grace for them to listen to the parents that you've given them, grace for them to take note of the, the discernment that their parents offer. All, Lord, all in all, make us more like you. Let us parent like you. Let us not be fearful. Let us parent with humility and with grace, Lord, but also let us not be passive, God. Let us stand up when it's necessary. Let us speak up when it's necessary. Let me be a better father, a better husband, more like Christ. Lord, we know we can only find that grace through you at your cross. So, Lord, we put our eyes to there today. We put our eyes to the cross of Christ. And we ask, Lord, give us wisdom. We know your word says, if any man lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And, God, we ask that you would do that today. Give us wisdom. Give it liberally to us, Lord, that we might know the right way to walk so that we can be faithful to you, and that we might know the right way to parent, to teach our children how to walk faithfully with you. We thank you for it, Lord, this day. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.